Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom, where I try to cut through the BS and lay out what the clowns are trying to do to you and what's coming next. 2023 has been an eventful year at the North Pole, as it faced a series of economic and financial crises under the leadership, or what passes for leadership, of the senile reindeer-sniffing old man Winter, whose friends, of course, bought the election. At one point, there was even chatter that toys may not ship at all, something we last saw in 2020 at the height of the supply chain crisis when even the quasi-naughty got coal, well, carbon footprints, in their stockings. Few of us will ever forget those days of the randomized naughty or nice list when even the reindeer games were canceled. But now, with the holidays approaching, many are breathing a sigh of relief after the recent Supreme Elf decision cleared the way for the charismatic lion-maned Santa to win a landslide victory, promising to take a chainsaw to the crony special interests that have latched like parasites onto the hard-working shires of the North. The year kicked off with a series of bank runs that had old man's press flunkies out in force, stammering through handouts for the influential pixie dust industry, all ending in an alphabet soup of trillion-dollar, or trillion pixie dust, government bailouts. The chaos continued through the summer as rampant inflation turned to fears of recession. The pointy-eared unions went on strike over electric sleigh mandates, and key central shires emptied amid an epidemic of light-fingered elves hopped up on moon crystals amid chronically understaffed town watches. News was dominated by Sleigh Lady in July, who first noticed that Mother Lover is not real, and then just a few months later, real aliens in Mexico. Meanwhile, we saw ongoing threats to pixie dust itself as the South Pole pushed its so-called BRICS coalition, aiming to deliver construction materials and petroleum byproducts under the tree. Thankfully, unlike in 2020, we could actually talk about all these things. Thanks to an eccentric tycoon who witches on stars and thinks free speech is the ultimate guarantor of elven rights. The forces of Mordor have not given up, but actually being able to speak has been a breath of fresh air to those of us who care about the future of the North. So what's next? What's next depends whether the people of the Shires can stay informed, can stay passionate, and focused on protecting our rights against the crony parasites that have burrowed into our institutional fabric. Burrowed despite commanding almost no public support that they haven't either bought or indoctrinated to captive little elves in public schools. Happily, hundreds of millions have woken up, with many more coming every day. We are still outnumbered and we're still comically outresourced, but once they hear the truth, the public is on our side. And so now begins the hard work. Millions of Americans are fleeing left-wing hellholes. Will the last one turn out the lights? The new year is a wonderful time to consider life changes. For millions of Americans, that means fleeing their socialist dystopia for the warm embrace of those very red states the elite despises. A few days ago, my colleague E.J. Antoni wrote a front-page article in the New York Post on fresh census data how millions of Americans are fleeing blue states most dramatically New York, for the relative small government utopias of Florida and Texas. In roll numbers in the year to July, 217,000 people fled New York. It's about 1.1% of the population, which is a typical wartime number. Where did they all go? Florida and Texas each added roughly 400,000 new residents over the period. California, Illinois, and Massachusetts are all seeing similar flights. 
So why are they fleeing? Two reasons, taxes and dysfunctional public services. In fact, in a study two years ago, EJ had predicted this after the Empire State hiked income taxes to a top rate of 15%. So that comes to 60% when you add on the federal take. Toss in the poop-strewn urban hellscapes of modern LA or New York. As one retired NYPD officer put it, quote, criminals and migrants are being put ahead of everyday New Yorkers, people are getting sick of it, and young families no longer see this as a place to raise their children. The bitter irony is taxes and crappy services are actually linked. The more tax you pay, the worse the services get. Because taxes spawn an entire parasitic activist class who grabs the pothole money for their diversity initiatives. To give a flavor, California taxes over $9,000 per person, and New York State over $10,000, yet they can't fix the potholes or hire enough police to keep junkies from bashing tourists in the head with bricks. Meanwhile, Florida and Texas take 4000 per person, so less than half, and somehow manage to have better roads and precisely zero junkies hitting tourists with bricks. Of course, this all suggests there's a really easy solution. Slash the taxes. Starve the beast, as Ronald Reagan put it. Force cities and states to defund the activist empire and whittle down to the roads, sanitation, and public safety that was the original deal. So what's next? In theory, eventually it gets bad enough that voters rebel and then politicians fix things. Alas, there's something called the Curley Effect, named after a Boston mayor who looted the city in vote-buying schemes, gambling his opponents would simply move out. It worked, and Mayor Curley got just the voters he wanted at the end of it. Indeed, we have a perfect case study in Detroit, celebrated as the high-tech city of the future in the 1950s, Then, as it deteriorated in the 60s, the middle class fled of all races. In other words, the frog did not jump to vote. The frog jumped to a whole nother pond. Having said, maybe this time is different because of the internet. After all, in the 50s and 60s, media was a left-wing cartel, and it was hard to even know what was happening. Whereas today, even with the censorship, we're able to get information out and organize via social media. The COVID censorship proved that. It's not perfect, but compared to the 50s or 60s, when there was nothing, I'll take what we have today. Add in St. Elon and even dare we dream a quorum of Republicans who find their testicles, and maybe voters can actually organize before it's too late. A word from our sponsors. If you follow Bitcoin, you probably know that the halving is just six months away, meaning we're about to get a big drop in the supply of new Bitcoin. We've seen that this can send Bitcoin's price up, so selling Bitcoin now to cover expenses could end up costing you. Credit card rates recently hit 24%, but borrowing against your Bitcoin with Unchained can save you a lot. You hold your keys and you can verify that your Bitcoin is secure anytime. Don't be forced to sell the bottom and miss out. For more info, go to Unchained.com and use promo code PETER to get $50 off concierge onboarding. Universal basic income is coming to Canada. Will the U.S. be next? I've been warning of a UBI, universal basic income, for a while now, since that is where we are in the fall of Rome sequence. Recently, Canada's left-wing liberals proposed just such a scheme, dubbed the, quote, guaranteed livable basic income. Lest one think it's just the liberals who've gone mad, Canada's Conservative Party deputy leader then spoke warmly of it, saying conservatives should, quote, own it. So, in all likelihood, it's coming. 
First off, what is a UBI? The idea is to give everybody just enough to get by whether or not they work. A typical number might be $1,000 per month. Supporters claim people will still work, which is hilarious. More on that in a moment. And many conservatives, such as the deputy leader, have been suckered with promises that it will replace the existing welfare state. Which, of course, is a lie. New welfare schemes are often sold that way, including the EITC here in the U.S., which was sold as a negative income tax. That would replace welfare as we know it. But, of course, that never happened. The extra trillions just went on top because it turns out that handing free money is like salting a soup. It's easy to add. It's very, very hard to take away. Beyond the bait and switch, why is a UBI so bad? Partly because the cost is raid the treasury level, so perhaps $3 trillion per year in the U.S., but mostly because it would radically expand our growing army of permanently unemployed couch-surfing parasites who do little work beyond voting for more welfare. To see why, consider two similar phenomena today, unemployment benefits and pensions. A few years ago, the New York Times put out a major time-use survey finding that while full-time workers spend five hours a day at work, unemployed people on benefits spend just 30 minutes a day looking for work. So how do they spend the other four and a half hours? Watching TV, napping, surfing the internet, playing games, and hanging out with their girlfriend. So that's a 90% drop in work. We've got similar numbers from retirement. Once Americans hit that magic 65 line, The Bureau of Labor Statistics tallied up the number of seniors working. That came out to 8% working full-time, 7% working part-time, which compares to 63% of the general population. So in that case, it's an 80% drop. Beyond the extortionate taxes on the few who still would work, the main victims would be the young, who will be bribed out of entry-level jobs, ushered into a life of quasi-poverty, doing nothing, having nothing, and complaining about it on TikTok. So what's next? Vote buying has been popular since at least the Roman Empire, who put the bread in bread and circuses, and it's driven the country to ruin since at least the Roman Empire. But the political calculus is irresistible. All those millions of juicy votes. COVID was the test case in Canada and in many other countries, and the next recession, you can be sure they will push it hard here in America. As for long-suffering Canadians, it looks like it will get worse before it gets better. Last week, one of my favorite substacks, FX Hedgers, did an in-depth review of how the Fed broke the housing market. In short, the American dream of homeownership is dying, and the Fed killed it on behalf of the bozos in Congress. The sordid tale begins with Lyndon B. Johnson in the 1960s, who converted a house from something you worked hard to buy into something bestowed by government on favored political groups. Johnson began with government money for apartments, which the left has always loved since everybody should live in a pod, and then single-family homes in poor areas. Of course, this backfired, pricing the poor out of the homes they've lived in for generations as prices rose and rents rose, breaking down long-standing communities. This took off as inflation soared in the 1970s, driven by Washington's spending for the Vietnam War and Johnson's Great Society welfare program, so-called guns and butter. The inflation drove the Fed to hike rates nearly 20%, which finished off many of the surviving poor. We got a reprieve in the blockbuster Reagan economy, which allowed wages to catch up and made houses affordable again for many Americans, which more or less continued through the 90s. 
At which point it went south. In the name of compassionate conservatism, Bush the Jr. massively expanded government subsidies to housing, while effectively forcing banks to lend to poor people with bad credit in the name of diversity, while incentivizing ratings agencies to look the other way at shell games like reverse amortization partial interest-only mortgages, which was actually a product. Of course, this set up the housing crash in 2008 as millions of bad loans came due, again throwing millions out of their homes. This set up Act 2 as the Fed responded to the housing crisis by forcing interest rates to nearly zero for, it turns out, almost 15 years. This drove house prices up again since low rates artificially boost asset values, whether stocks or houses. Meanwhile, the Fed also poured gasoline, buying up trillions of mortgage bonds to further subsidize mortgages, along with round after round of QE, money printing, in various flavors. Now, beyond the zombie economy these low rates delivered, this meant anybody who already owned a home had hit the Fed jackpot, while the poor and young were increasingly left behind. They had no homes to go up. In fact, now they had to buy the expensive homes. In fact, housing is a major driver of that income inequality that journalists obsess over. It is not dog-eat-dog capitalism, it is the Fed. We got another brief Reagan-style reprieve in the Trump economy as jobs and startups grew, and then, of course, COVID hit, when the entirety of Washington lost its collective mind, pouring $8 trillion into the economy in a desperate attempt to buy the lockdowns the journalists and activists demanded all of which sent inflation to near double digits, sent home prices soaring again, and drove the Fed to, at this point, 8% mortgages that have frozen the entire housing market in amber, since anybody sporting a 3% mortgage cannot afford to sell and buy another house at 8 So what's next? The housing market today is betting on lower rates, but that's not going to do it, because low rates will simply prop up home prices and seal the lockout on the young and the poor while also slowing income growth and a repeat of the pre-Trump zombie economy. The end result is what FX Hedgers calls, quote, modern-day serfdom, with the poor and especially the young living hand-to-mouth bystanders to Washington's vote-buying circus. This podcast is supported by our sponsor, MoneyMetals.com, the most trusted bullion dealer and depository in the United States. Money Metals is known for its competitive pricing, excellent customer service, and fast delivery of physical gold and silver, as well as their educational content and strong advocacy for sound money policies at the state and federal level. They've set the industry standard for selling, buying, and storing precious metals. If you're looking to help protect yourself against inflation and market turmoil, I hope you'll give them a try. To learn more or to buy your physical gold and silver, go to moneymetals.com. Mainstream Yale economist Bob Schiller is warning of a, quote, cataclysm for the U.S. dollar if Joe Biden and the EU follow through on their plan to hand $300 billion of frozen Russian assets to Ukraine. Schiller argues it would, quote, destroy the halo of security that surrounds the dollar and be the first step towards de-dollarization across the world. The background here is that after Russia's invasion of the Ukraine last year, the U.S. and Europe froze $300 billion owned by Russia's central bank who had been using them as reserve assets to back the currency, as all central banks do. This was part of the war sanctions in hopes that it would crash the Russian banking system, leading to social unrest, perhaps to Putin on a spike. 
Ironically, it was our banks that crashed instead, starting with Silicon Valley, then Signature and First Republic, along with a bevy of lesser stars. Moreover, this was a catastrophic move for the U.S. dollar, essentially putting every country in the world on notice that should they displease Joe Biden, their sovereign dollars will be seized with an eye to putting their leader on a spike. A risk that notably does not exist if one parks assets in, say, the Japanese yen or Chinese yuan, or gold for that matter. And so, predictably, we've had moves all year of countries diversifying out of the U.S. dollar, getting out before they're targeted next, with China only too happy to grease the skids and gut America's dollar empire. And there it stood for two years, but now things have changed. Namely, the Ukraine money spigot is running dry. Republicans in Congress just blocked another $60 billion of taxpayer money to Zelensky, while Hungary's populist prime minister blocked another $50 billion from the EU. This has meant a scramble for dollars in Washington and Brussels to feed the Kiev meat grinder. As one EU official put it, quote, we need to find a way to get cash to Ukraine in whatever form, as in legal or not. And so, unable to pass more money in the legitimate political process, the US and Europe are now turning to that $300 billion. A recent US government discussion paper argued the assets could be seized, while, according to the Financial Times, another official said Washington is in, quote, active discussions with the G7 on seizing the money. The UK Foreign Secretary claimed there is a, quote, legal route to confiscating the assets, adding that, quote, extraordinary times require extraordinary measures. Now, if a remote contest over a strip of obscure Eastern European cornfields doesn't qualify as extraordinary, I don't know what does. Indeed, Schiller notes that, quote, if America does this to Russia today, tomorrow it can do it to anyone, which makes it very risky for any country to own dollars. So what's next? I have mentioned in a series of videos that the U.S. dollar is in free fall, both in trade usage and now reserve usage. If the clowns follow through, it will accelerate the flight from the dollar, going partly into gold, which is already happening, and the rest into other currencies, including the very welcoming arms of the Chinese. In the old days, we assumed the adults in Washington would head it off, moving heaven and earth to protect the dollar. This amateur hour recklessness strongly suggests that, at least when it comes to the dollar, the adults are no longer in charge. After the Fed's cocaine bear interest rate pivot last week, central bankers all over the world are now turning to rate cuts like lemmings off a cliff. In fact, Bank of America's Michael Hartnett now predicts 152 rate cuts in the coming year. This is a problem given that inflation is continuing across the major economies, with The Economist pegging final 2023 inflation numbers at 4.1 for the U.S., that's twice the target, 5.5% for the euro area, and 6.8% for Britain. Even Japan is at 3.2, which is way above their target after literally decades of structural deflation. Now, normally central banks know better than to cut rates into inflation, because it is Econ 101 that cutting interest rates pumps inflation. It makes it cheaper to borrow, and people borrow in order to spend more. In fact, the Fed knows this so well, it has only cut into inflation five times since 1942. By the way, every single time followed by runaway inflation. Instead, central banks normally wait until the last possible moment to cut, that moment when recession is just cresting the hill, at which point they cut loose with the cannons in a desperate bid to stab off the coming crash, 
which gives us the classic central bank boom-bust cycle. It never works, of course, because the Fed is incompetent, so literally every single cut since at least 1980 actually led to soaring joblessness. So the precise cuts that are supposed to boost the economy apparently always come too late. Why so late? Because the Fed is afraid of getting blamed for its recessions, but it's also afraid of getting blamed for its inflation. So it tries to trade off the two, steal a little bit here, a little bit there, maybe nobody will notice. So it's all pretty shabby, but the problem is, forget trade-offs, at this point the Fed is cutting directly into inflation. Now, for them to be that desperate suggests either that Joe Biden's got pictures of Jerome Powell parting with Hunter, or more likely, it suggests this is not a normal recession cresting the hill. This is a monster. So that all brings us to the lemmings, the farm team of central bankers who transmit Federal Reserve incompetence to the rest of humanity. They too have been itching to cut because of local stagnation, but their hands have been tied because they can't move until the Fed moves, because their local capital would flood out to the U.S. chasing higher returns, which would crash their currencies, as is currently happening to the end as we speak. And so now that the Fed has waved the white flag, worldwide inflation is again on the menu, of course after a respectable bout of recession-induced deflation. So what's next? The irony is the Fed's rate hikes have certainly savaged banks, companies, and consumers, especially mortgage buyers, but they haven't actually tightened financial conditions for the simple reason that federal deficits are so large, they're pulling vast quantities, so far at least a trillion, out of bank savings parked at the Fed and putting them back into circulation. Put it together, and the central banks of the world are coordinating for worldwide stagflation, slow growth and reaccelerating inflation, once again following the 1970s disaster to AT. Read the full article, juicy charts and all at profsanonge.com. Americans now pay more in debt service than we do on the military. Another couple billion in interest on the national debt will be the single largest category of federal spending outside Social Security and Medicare, both of which, of course, are going bust. The sobering statistic comes from the latest monthly statement from the Department of Treasury, which tallies up receipts and outlays by source and function. So in the past two months alone, Treasury has shelled out almost $170 billion in interest, so that's roughly $3 billion per day. That's up from a billion a day just two years ago. So yes, it is going parabolic. Now, as a nation, we obviously spend too much on the military as it is. We should spend exactly the amount needed to secure the homeland and perhaps maintain the integrity of the border, which is probably one-tenth of what we currently spend failing to maintain the integrity of the border. After all, we have 11 aircraft carrier strike groups which are currently plowing through $200 million per month each, so times 11, gallivanting around the world trying to join wars. And yet, even that grotesque imperial outreach no longer cuts it in the world of Washington spending, with debt interest now exceeding it by $20 billion in just the past two months, and set to continue soaring with interest almost triple what it was just two years ago. Toss in the slow-motion train crash as old, low-interest-rate debt is replaced by the expensive new stuff, and it gets goofy. So who owns all that debt? About $7 trillion is so-called intra-government debt, meaning things like Social Security that people thought had a lockbox, but of course do not because Congress pissed it all away. Of the remaining $26 trillion, about 20% is owned by the Fed. Half 
is held by other Americans, from banks to pensions to individual investors. And 30% of the debt, so about $10 trillion, is owned by foreigners. Now, to put those foreign holdings in perspective, all the bank accounts in all the banks in America add up to just over $20 trillion, so about half that. Incidentally, until Nixon broke the gold standard, America actually had a positive net international investment position. So we owned more of them than they owned of us. It is now negative $18 trillion and plunging. So thanks, Federal Reserve. So what's next? Given projections of a $2 trillion plus deficit this year, on its way to $50 trillion by 2030, according to Congress's own in-house accountants, combining that with high interest rates set to continue potentially for many years, that means interest payments are going to keep soaring. So more debt at higher rates. What is the end game? One possibility is a political entrepreneur who floats hard default, like Greece did in 2009, so that would cut off the foreigners and the plutocrats and perhaps issue fresh script for the widows and orphans, or more likely so-called soft default, meaning they pay the debt the old-fashioned way, they let inflation rip and destroy the dollar. Given the lobbying budgets of those same foreigners and plutocrats, my money is on the latter. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode right in your inbox and visit petersanonch.com for videos and articles. Okay, we'll be watching. See you next time.